0: Happy Sabbath to you all, and greetings from our brethren in Indianapolis, Indiana, where my wife and I visited last Sabbath. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Greer drove us up from Louisville to Indianapolis, so we enjoyed Sabbath services there. And uh, of course, the first few days were very beautiful there. We actually had snow flurries on uh, the first Holy Day on our way to services at 11 o'clock, so that was rather exciting. Well, greetings to uh, all our guests and uh, all our brethren around the world. Uh, Thank you, Mrs. Guidry, for that He that keepeth Israel, Psalm 121, uh, one of the psalms that I sometimes recite in bed when I can't go to sleep at night. But thank you very much for that. Uh, Today is the fifth day of the Days of Unleavened Bread, and I hope you've been enjoying special unleavened treats throughout the week. Uh, someone had some egg and onion matzos at the office, and just very, very tasty. So I enjoyed those, and some gave, someone gave us some baklava or baklava, uh, which is also a very unleavened, tra- tasty treat. Well, God has given us the gift of these annual festivals and holy days to reveal his awesome plan of salvation for us and for all mankind. While we were in Louisville, Mr. and Mrs. Greer took us to Churchill Downs. Churchill Downs is where the famous Kentucky Derby is held every year. We saw the museum, we saw the track, and saw movies about all over the year famous horses like Seabiscuit and War Horse and also Secretariat. But I was impressed with the power of those horses that we saw in some of the videos there in the museum, you might turn to Revelation 19. I, when we think about God's annual holy days, we think about the Feast of Trumpets. We think about the time when we will be with Christ at the wedding and then come back with Him on horses. It says here in Revelation 19:14, the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed Him on white horses. And of course, verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So we'll be coming on horses. I I never liked to to ride horses before, but um, I had a negative experience as a little boy when uh, this little colt didn't follow my directions. But Anyway, on our honeymoon, my wife wanted to go horseback riding, so I uh, finally learned to enjoy horseback riding after a while. But we look forward to that time when Christ will return. Last Sunday night, uh, baptized members observed the New Testament Passover, an annual memorial of our Savior's death and his sacrifice for all mankind. That was the Passover in 31 A.D. when Jesus established the new covenant that we talked about two weeks ago. Matthew 26, verse 28, he said, For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. His blood was shed for your, your sins and my sins. His blood paid for our sins. We are now under the new covenant. We are pioneers of the new covenant. Last Monday night, we observed the night to be much observed. The Israelites went out on the night of the 15th of the first month in God's calendar under a full moon. Wednesday morning, April 15th, 2014, I'll mention the years in case the sermon is played in 2015, but on April 15th, 2014, there was also a full moon with a lunar eclipse. Uh, the greatest eclipse was to be about 3.46 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, but the cloud cover uh, prevented direct sight for those of us in Kentucky. And by the way, uh, this first full lunar eclipse of the tetrad the four lunar eclipses you know about, there will be uh, the next one, the Feast of Tabernacles, and then the next two, um, the uh, night to be much observed, 2015, and the Feast of Tabernacles, 2015. But this was the only one that was able to be seen in the North from the North American continent. However, you are still able to see that lunar eclipse in a one-minute time-lapse video uh, from the Griffith Observatory. Just uh, Google the uh, lunar eclipse, or you can see a, a longer time-lapse a video of the eclipse on the NASA site. So the moon did appear with a reddish hue, and God is giving the world hints of what is going to come with the sixth seal of Revelation. And that, of course, is not the sixth seal of Revelation, but God is giving us hints of it. In Egypt on the 15th of the first month, the Israelites began their exodus under a full moon on the 15th of Nisan. The tenth plague had killed all the firstborn of the Egyptians and the firstborn of their livestock. The Egyptians then wanted the Israelites to leave Egypt. You want to turn to Exodus, the twelfth chapter. With all these plagues, the tenth plague now had taken place, the Egyptians wanted the Israelites to leave. The Israelites plundered the Egyptians during the daylight portion of the fourteenth of Nisan, Exodus 12, verse 33. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. All of the firstborn were dead, and they felt that, well, maybe there would be more plagues, and we're all going to die. So the people took their dough before it was leaven, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes and their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses and they had asked from the egyptians articles of silver articles of gold and clothing now your marginal reference here is exodus 321 you check back there god told moses yes that was exactly what was going to happen when he moses was going to go back to egypt to lead the people of israel out of egypt this would happen and the eternal had given the people favor in the sight of the egyptians so that they granted them what they had requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. The children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot besides children. So here was a great multitude estimated with the probably around 3 million that were there that time. So they plundered the Egyptians. That was the night to be much observed. That's the King James Version in Exodus 12, verse 42. But here in the New King James Version, starting with verse 40, now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. They weren't in Egypt 430 years, but their sojourn was 430 years. On the very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord of the Eternal went out from the land of Egypt. I think it's the one of the other translations, the New Revised Standard Version, it said, They went out in military order. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. For this is that night of the eternal, of solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout all their generations. And again, the, new King, the King James Version is the night to be much observed. So they began their exodus from Ramses. Now well, I've been there. Our World Tomorrow television crew was there in 1991, and uh, it's an archaeological site now called Tel Adaba. They journeyed from there to Ram, from Ramses to Sukkoth, uh, where we also took video uh, when we were there in 1991, and that is a archaeological site called Tel El Maskuta. So it's been exciting when I read these to realize, I've been there, been there to Ramesses. Of course, that's a later edition because it was not called Ramesses when the Israelites went out in the 15th century B.C. because Ramesses didn't come along until the 13th century B.C. So it was called Ramesses afterwards. However, it's exciting to realize that our television crew were there and we did, of course, the two-part series in the World Tomorrow program called Lessons of the Exodus turn to numbers the 33rd chapter so it was a night when they went out during the daylight part of the 14th they were plundering the egyptians so when did they go out they went out at night but what day was it numbers 33 verse 1 numbers 33 verse 1 these are the journeys of the children of israel who went out of the land of egypt by their armies they had to be very well organized under the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Eternal. And these are their journeys according to their starting points. Numbers 33.3. 3. They departed from Ramesses on the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of the Egyptians. So they went out on the 15th, which was the night to be much observed. I think I've mentioned to you before, but that was the night in 31 AD when Jesus was put into the tomb. And that would have been Wednesday night after the Passover Tuesday night. Then Wednesday night, Jesus was put in the tomb. That was, I believe, April 25th, 31 AD. And that night, there was a red blood moon, as Peter talked about it later on on the day of Pentecost in Acts, the second chapter, saying this is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel. When you read back in Joel 2, verse 30. For the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Eternal had killed among them. Also their gods, the Eternal had executed judgments, verse 4. So that was on the 15th when they left. They were burying, the Egyptians were burying their firstborn. Uh, someone went around the office the other day asking how many of us were firstborn. So i just take a survey here now. How many of you are firstborn in your family? We see your hands. Okay, it's hard to see, but it looks like about 68% of you are firstborn. Now, if you were dead in Egypt, our congregation would be diminished even more. But thankfully, uh, you know, God's... The Passover was not only for the firstborn, but for all sinners, and we're thankful thankful for that. So the ten plagues finally convinced Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave Egypt. In fact, many of the Egyptians were pleading with Pharaoh, look, let them go. And uh, you can believe that the firstborn in Pharaoh's court uh, didn't want to die. They knew what the tenth plague was going to be. There is, to this day, the Jewish people observe what is called the War of the Firstborn. It's uh, celebrated on the weekly Sabbath before Passover. The Jewish calendar describes this event, Shabbat.org calendar. It's called the War of the Firstborn. Quote, on the Shabbat before the Exodus, Nisan 10th of, of that year, the firstborn of Egypt who occupied the senior positions in the priesthood of government fought a bloody battle with Pharaoh's troops in an effort to secure the release of the Israelites and prevent the plague of the firstborn. This great miracle, quote-unquote, is commemorated each year on the Shabbat before Passover, which is therefore called Shabbat Hagadol, the Great Shabbat. This is one of the rare instances in which a commemorative date on the Jewish calendar is set by the day of the week rather than by the day of the month. And as you recall, how many of you have seen at least a little bit of the classic movie, The Ten Commandments? Let me see your hands. Okay, that is like about 95.3% of you have seen at least a part of that movie. And in that movie, you recall, Pharaoh's staff were pleading him, we'll let them go. But, of course, God hardened his heart, and he was not going to let them go. That was quite an amazing movie. The narration of that movie, that is the beginning opening, rather impressed me because it gave a a big-picture overview of the plight of the Israelites as slaves in Egypt. And this is the narration that begins the Ten Commandment movie. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And from this light God created life upon earth. And man was given dominion over all things upon this earth and the power to choose between good and evil. But each sought to do his own will because he knew not the light of God's law. Man took dominion over man. The conquered were made to serve the conqueror. The weak were made to serve the strong. And freedom was gone from the world. So did the Egyptians cause the children of Israel to serve with rigor and their lives were made bitter with hard bondage. And their cry came up unto God, and God heard them, and cast into Egypt, into the lowly hut of Amran and Yochabel, the seed of a man upon whose mind and heart would be written God's law and God's commandments, one man to stand alone against an empire. Rather impressive beginning to that movie. But even today, God... Here's our cries for deliverance. He's delivered us from the slavery of sin. And although we often sin, we are no longer practicing sin. But we need to cry out to God for deliverance and strength as we face our trials and tribulations. You can read Psalm 6 and Psalm 7. David cried out, Save me! And we have even in our hymnal, the song, Save me, O God, by thy great name, and judge me by thy strength. Judge me by thy strength, meaning deliver me by thy strength. So we cry out to God to save us. It's not wrong to ask God to save you. And I ask God that, have asked God to do that, and do ask God to save me from time to time. And if you have never done that, you might read Psalm 6 and Psalm 7. But God led the Israelites to the Red Sea to test them. And to show them his power to rescue them and deliver them. God also gives us challenges so that we must learn to overcome our obstacles with God's help. He challenges us to overcome that we'll grow in spiritual character and strength. One of the major lessons of the Days of Olive and Bread is that we must overcome. We must practice overcome. We must be Overcomers. Well, are you an overcomer? The title of the sermon today is the way of overcoming. God promised the Israelites a beautiful land of all their own, the, the Promised Land. But how would they get there? There were three ways or routes into the Holy Land. We turn to Exodus, the 13th chapter, Exodus 13, verse 17. Exodus 13, verse 17. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. That was one of the routes. And if you take a look at some of your Bible maps, uh, you'll see that the way of the Philistines was along the Mediterranean. It was the fastest route into the Holy Land uh, along the uh, coast. And the children of Israel went up by orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. He did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Verse 18, so God let the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. So this was a different route. This is the wilderness route. And the children of Israel went up by orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. There was one other, they began actually going towards a third route, which is called the Way of Shur, S-H-U-R. That's mentioned here in Exodus 15, uh, verse 22. Exodus 15 and verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found now water. Now the wilderness, the Way of Shur... Was a mid route across Sinai, uh, but they started in that route, but then God brought them down along the coastal area. So they were in the wilderness for that period of time. But notice here in Exodus, I don't want to get back here. I should have continued in Exodus 13. Sorry, let's go back to Exodus 13, starting with verse 19. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. Now notice this, verse 21. And the Eternal went before them by by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So God was with them all the way. And who was in that pillar and that fire? Well, it was the one who became Jesus Christ. God guided them all that way. They were reconciled to God. That is, they were death angel, or the angels of destruction, as it's called in the Psalms, passed over them. And today, we have been reconciled, we've been justified by his blood, as we go on our exodus. Let's turn to Romans, the fifth chapter. Romans, the fifth chapter. And again, the Protestant world just thinks that the whole plan of salvation is just what they would call the Lord's Supper or Communion. But it was after supper, when you read through, as we read in the Passover service, in uh, Matthew and and Luke, after supper, Jesus instituted the new symbols. That is the wine, the bread, and the wine for the new covenant symbols. Here in Romans, the fifth chapter, Romans 5, starting verse 8. And uh, this is so... Encouraging for us personally, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till we were righteous. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. So we have been justified. In the Bible study course, Tomorrow's World Bible study course, Mr. John O'Gwen has the seasons, the festival seasons in three sections, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And this, of course, after the Passover, we have been justified. We have also been sanctified when we receive God's Holy Spirit. Much more, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, think that we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we have received the reconciliation and we rejoice in God, as it says in verse 11. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So the days of unleavened bread follow our reconciliation to God. What do they picture? What is the meaning of this second annual festival after Passover? It shows our part in God's plan of salvation. The rest of the world says you don't have to do anything. Once saved, always saved. You don't have to do anything. But God gives us the days of unleavened bread to show that, yes, this is our part in God's plan of salvation. In fact, that expression appears in the old Ambassador College Bible Correspondence course under the days of unleavened bread, our part in God's plan of salvation. But what must we do as our part? We need to be overcomers. Let's turn to Revelation, the third chapter, which we've read probably dozens of times here because we Realize this is part of our calling, part of our Christian responsibility. We strive to be Philadelphians. Revelation 3 and verse 12. He who overcomes will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So it's only the bride of Christ, those who are in the first resurrection, that will have the name the new Jerusalem on them. And we will be pillars. A pillar is a support of the building. My wife and I, on our way back from Louisville, Kentucky, stopped at the capital of Kentucky in Frankfort, Kentucky. And it it has a marvelous interior. Uh, they, of course, they have the legislative branch and the, the Senate branch. But you look from one end to the other, and you see these marvelous granite columns, polished, just a glorious, beautiful in, uh, internal architecture uh, there at the Capitol Building in Frankfort, Kentucky. And I just look at those pillars, just beautiful uh, shiny marble or granite, whichever it may have been, uh, pillars inside that that uh, capital building. But God is going to make us, symbolically, pillars in the very temple of God. And you read later on uh, that there is no temple in the New Jerusalem because the God and the Lamb are the temple. But So that shows the intimate and close relationship that we have with him. But he says, he that overcomes. So that is our responsibility. The Days of Unleavened Bread picture the miracle of conversion and spiritual growth. They teach us a profound lesson, which we've heard time and again, but this is meat in due season. We must overcome self, Satan, and society. We must overcome human nature. Human nature is leavened. Which must be replaced with the unleavened divine nature, godly character. Last Sabbath, you heard Dr. Meredith's powerful sermon on living the unleavened spiritual life. Overcoming is vital to our daily exodus. God gave ancient Israel great victory over Egypt, and He gives us daily victories if we are close to Him over sin, and over selfishness. We need to overcome. What do we need to overcome? Again, we'll review what you've heard many times. First John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, or the Greek cosmos, the ways of the world. God so loved the world, that is, He loved the human beings in the world, but not the ways of the world. And John is making that distinction here. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, he's defining what he's talking about here, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Have you ever recognized in your own nature lust of the eyes? Have you ever recognized in your own life The lust of the flesh. Have you ever recognized in your own life the pride of life? Well, these, of course, have to be mortified, put to death, as it tells us in Colossians 3. Mortify the deeds of the flesh, the members of the flesh. And keep your mind on things above. So he goes on to say, and the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So, One of our enemies is that of the influence of the world. We see around us the urgency to overcome the influence of an immoral society. We need to overcome the lust of the flesh, of selfishness, of vanity. In the previous verses, he shows us how to overcome Satan. Verse 12, 1 John 2. I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. God gave me victories over Satan when I was first coming into the church and I've told you before how Satan would put blasphemous thoughts into my mind. And it was a battle. And I memorized Philippians 4:8. So that, as Mr. Armstrong said, you get air out of a bottle by putting water in it, and you get wrong thoughts out of your mind by putting right thoughts in it. When those thoughts came, and I knew they were coming from Satan, I would just quote Philippians 4.8. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, pure, lovely, good, of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. God gave me victories. He goes on to say, I write unto you little children because you have known the Father. Verse 14, 1 John 2. I have written to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men, we can say young women as well, because you are strong. How are they strong? And the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. How vital it is that we are eating of Christ, as Dr. Meredith has emphasized so many times. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life, Jesus said in John 6.63. And it's the Bible. We need to read it every day as a part of our thoughts, as a part of our way of life, a part of our thinking. How did they overcome? By the Word of God abiding in them. That's how they were successful. Of course, we have to overcome Satan. I might refer you to Mr. Mario Hernandez's sermon, The Spirit World, that he gave January 12, 2013, sermon number 742. So we have to overcome the world. We have to overcome Satan. We have to overcome our own human nature. Turn to Romans, the seventh chapter. Romans, the seventh chapter the Apostle Paul recognized his human nature, and I hope that you have recognized yours. We know Jeremiah 17:9, "The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or beyond cure, as some of the other translations have it. And the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, right here in Romans 8 and verse 7. So we understand, or as the NIV has it, I believe, that the mind is hostile against God. But the Apostle Paul realized his nature. Romans 7, verse 24. Romans 7, verse 24. O wretched man that I am. When you ask, who am I? Well, I'm a wretched woman. I'm a wretched man. If my human nature is dominating, and we have to make sure that our human nature does not dominate us, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So again, as I brought out in the sermon a couple weeks ago, uh, the Apostle Paul did not do away with the law, just as the Former association said, well, if you want to understand this false idea of the new covenant, just read Romans and Galatians. As I explained then, the apostle Paul in Romans said, I myself serve the law of God and with the flesh the law of sin. So he understood, but he understood that he had to overcome his human nature as well. Turn back to 1st John, the first chapter, 1st John 1. Do you ever sin? Remember, we need to not practice sin. That is, be habitually practicing the same way of sinning day after day, week after week. If you are, you need to seek counsel from a minister. Or you need to start fasting right away. It tells us in James, the fourth chapter, be afflicted and mourn and weep that your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness in the sight of the Lord. So if you have a problem, an addiction, of some kind of sinful habit, start fasting. Humble yourself, and God will lift you up and help you to overcome that sinful habit or that way of thinking. We all give in to temptation. We sin from time to time. But we just heard in the sermonette, we were asked, do you just ask for forgiveness once a year? Or do you ever sin? And if you do, do you ask God's forgiveness? 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. But When was the last time you confessed a sin? We have to again face reality acknowledge our sins take responsibility for our actions our thoughts and our behaviors but we must confess our sins the christian life is exemplified by continually coming before god's throne of grace and we thank him for his forgiveness we thank him for the blood of christ verse 7 in verse 7 of first john 1 But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, God's Word is light, we have fellowship with one another. We have that unity we heard about in the sermonette. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So what do we need to overcome? We need to overcome sin, self, Satan, and society. And those are formidable enemies. Why must we overcome? We've seen our three enemies because Christ tells us to. We just read in Revelation, the third chapter, that the overcomers, the Philadelphian overcomers, will be pillars in the temple of God. But he also tells the other six churches that they must be overcomers as well. Seven times in Revelation 2 and 3. He that overcomes is going to be blessed with eternal life and being in God's kingdom so again the days of unleavened bread show our part in God's plan of salvation remember we are told to do something let's turn back to Leviticus the 23rd chapter Leviticus 23 Mr. League mentions the uh, last day of unleavened bread cited here in Leviticus the 23rd chapter and thank you Mr. League, for reminding me of my ordination as evangelist 30 years ago, uh, this feast, I was ordained as a preaching elder uh, 49 years ago. This coming May. So, anyway, thank you for that uh, memorial. Yes, uh, you you are you are uh, in my gracious sight. Thank you, Mr. League. Uh, Leviticus 23. And uh, we start here in, of course, verse 4. These are the feasts of the eternal. Holy convocations which you shall proclaim in their appointed times. We are proclaiming it right now. On the 14th day of the first month, that twilight is the Lord's Passover. The 15th day is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So again, I just uh, enjoy all those special treats. My wife, uh, you know, uh, used to uh, have to remind her that um, cook unleavened pancakes, and they were just absolutely delicious. So uh, I have to get back to that. You must eat unleavened bread on the first day. You shall have a holy convocation, and then you shall offer an offering for seven days. The seventh day, end of verse eight, shall be a holy convocation you shall do no customary work in it. So we have those two holy days for the second festival of God's annual plan of salvation. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. What does leaven symbolize? Well, we know in one case it symbolizes the kingdom of God. So God says it's like a little leaven that leavens the whole lump. But here... God uses leaven as a symbol of sin. First Corinthians, the fifth chapter, starting with verse six. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What was their problem? Verse two, they were puffed up. They were glorying in their modern tolerance of sin. That's what we see all around us today. Those who are approving same-sex marriage, they maybe have a heterosexual marriage, but they're approving what God calls an abomination. And so He's saying right here, you are puffed up. They had the wrong kind of tolerance. They tolerate tolerated evil. And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken from among you. Verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. How were they unleavened? Were they unleavened spiritually? No, we just read in verse 2 they were puffed up. So they were unleavened physically, but they were not unleavened spiritually. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. I'm so sad that a colleague of mine ordained the same day I was as an evangelist was co-opted in the false heresy or in the heresy, in the fallacy of the new covenant given by the former association. And he said, I've read through the New Testament and I can't find any command to keep a holy day. What? I hope he didn't know what he was talking about, but here is a command to a Gentile church to keep one of the annual festival holy days. Let us keep the feast. And this is a Gentile church, a Corinth church. You have clear commands in the Bible in the New Testament be keeping God's annual festivals. Let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, so, what does leaven symbolize? Symbolizes sin and our human nature, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here we find that unleavened bread symbolizes God's nature, divine nature, sincerity, and truth. What is truth? John seventeen seventeen. Thy word is truth. And I hope, uh, by the way, that you have read our current Tomorrow's World magazine emphasizing truth. Here we are eating the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And I hope that you've studied on the subject of truth. This is Who Has the Truth, the uh, cover, Open Doors for the Gospel, Dr. Meredith's article, Why Don't Most Churches Preach the Truth? So again, I hope that... uh, and during the Days of Unleavened Bread when we're emphasizing truth that you have read the current Tomorrow's World magazine. So this is an awesome truth that God is creating in us his righteous godly character. And in the church bulletin Dr. Douglas Winnale's commentary on humility key to unity. And so we think of ourselves as being unleavened, we have to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Is that Micah six eight, I believe. So thank you for all of your service and character and examples of service that many of you are setting today. But we have to be careful in what is leavened. You know, we um, I think over the years we've determined, and I like Mexican food when I during the days of unleavened bread. Flour tortillas uh, allegedly uh, have uh, leaven in them, but corn tortillas do not. I don't know if I should mention, but coming back uh, from Louisville, uh, we stopped at a Kentucky Fried Chicken. Someone had mentioned that uh, some of the Kentucky Fried Chicken, of course, breaded, would be leavened. However, the original, we were told, the original uh, recipe was not leavened, so (laughs) my... We're stopping at the KFC counter, Kentucky Fried Chicken counter, and my wife asked the uh, receptionist, is, is this got uh, baking soda? Does this have yeast in it? So actually the young lady was very cooperative, went back and got a package of the original recipe chicken, and we read all the ingredient, ingredients on it, and it did not have any yeast uh, in it. It had some chemicals, but it didn't have... Uh, <laughs> It didn't have any yeast or anything in it. So we enjoyed Kentucky Fried Chicken original recipe at this restaurant, and our conscience was clear. But, but leaven is pervasive. It's, it's all over. And you just have to be careful. You have to read the ingredients. You know, it's Just like in Genesis 4-7, when God told Cain, he said, uh, sin lies at the door. As leaven is all over the place. But when you eat unleavened bread today and tomorrow, and just realize that you have to be alert to where leaven may be creeping around your, your food stores and think about the unleavened bread representing sincerity and truth and representing Christ, the sinless bread of life. He said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life and he said in John 6 51 I am the living bread so think of that when you eat your unleavened bread that you're ingesting the symbolic symbols of sincerity and truth that we are to be partakers of God's divine nature we've read that quite a few times but let's read it again in 2nd Peter, the first chapter, Second Peter, the first chapter. What an awesome miracle! And here the world is tomorrow, keeping a day named after a pagan fertility goddess. How? How in the world can any thinking, professing Christian? Think that he or she should be observing a day that honors Ishtar, a pagan fertility goddess. Talk about being deceived, you the world is deceived. Plainly deceived. Oh well, here's Second Peter one verse two we have the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as His divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness. Well, Sometimes you think, oh, I wish I had this, I wish I had that. And God says, look, I've given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. So be thankful for what He's giving you. Through the knowledge of Him who has called you by glory and virtue, by which have given us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And, of course, we're battling that in today's world that is full of corruption, full of lust. We must be overcomers. But how can we be overcomers? I'm going to give you a couple strategies or a few strategies depending on the time that we have of how we can be overcomers. Number one, see the big picture. Let's turn to Exodus, the 14th chapter. Dr. Meredith continually admonishes us to see the big picture. So many people get caught up on the twigs. They get caught up on little offenses, and they don't forgive their enemies, don't pray for their enemies. And so they get stuck rather than seeing the big picture. That's what happened to Israel. They were told they were going to a land of milk and honey, and yet they forgot. They did not keep that vision of the promised land in mind. Exodus 14. So here on the seventh day of the days of unleavened bread, they were at the Red Sea. Exodus 14.10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Eternal. Then they said to Moses, Now, by the way, uh, if you've seen the Ten Commandments movie, you know that uh, Dathan is this uh, one man uh, played by Edward G. Robinson. And, uh, of course, when you read back about the, the... a rebellion of Dathan and of So Dathan is is the bad guy in here. And, and uh, he actually uses these words uh, in the movie, The Ten Commandments. So then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt so with us to bring us up out of Egypt. Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Or it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Well, you'll see that tonight if you see the movie. But they complained. They did not see the big picture. Numbers 13, verse 23. Then they came to the valley of Eshcol, there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. So even today, you know, one of the souvenirs of Israel, if you've ever traveled there, is a wood carving of two men with a long pole, and hanging from that pole is a huge cluster of grapes. And so that uh, today is still a symbolic and, uh, of Israel. So they came back from returning from spying out the land after 40 days, and of course, they complained. They said that the cities are fortified and very large. Verse 28. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak, the Amalekites, Am- dwell in the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks. But notice verse 30. Are you a Caleb? We all need to have Caleb's attitude in our walk in our travel in the way of overcoming. Verse 30, Numbers 13, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. If you don't have that marked in your Bible, you may want to highlight that. We are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, No, we're not able to do that. And they would complain, chapter 14, saying, uh, verse 2, they complained against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt. Oh, if we had died in the wilderness. And so they said, well, you're going to get your wish. And, and uh, the Eternal said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? Verse 27 of uh, Numbers 14, verse 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me, says the Eternal to Moses? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. And so they were then condemned for 40 years of the wilderness, and all who were numbered, verse 29, according to your entire number, from 20 years old and above, except Caleb and Joshua, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make for you to dwell. So they were walking into a land of milk and honey, but those complainers were to die in the wilderness. Turn back to Philippians, the second chapter. We need to always keep our eyes on the goal. And they did not. They complained about little things. And they didn't trust God, even though He'd given them miracle after miracle. Philippians, the second chapter, verse 14 And I'm sure our children all know this verse by heart. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in this world. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored. Have any of you adults complained about anything this past week? Have any of you children complained to your parents about anything this week? Philippians 2.14, do all things without complaining and disputing. The King James Version has do all things without murmurings and disputing. The NIV, do everything without grumbling or arguing. The NRSV. Do all things without murmuring and arguing. So we need to make sure that we are not complainers. Now, I, my wife and I attended the uh, Kingston Days of Unleavened Bread uh, area in uh, New York one time. Mister. Jonathan McNair hosts that every year. And uh, one of the cabins where some of the people were staying had freezing cold water. We couldn't take uh, showers. And so, some were describing the problem, some were complaining. And I said, now, told everyone that there's a difference between complaining and describing the problem. If you can accurately describe the problem without complaining and strive to find a solution, that's the distinction. You know, say, oh, you know, all those managers here at the Kingston Plantation, oh, you know, no, they didn't do that. Uh, the water's very cold, it's freezing. Uh, we can catch coal by it. You know, you, you describe the problem, but you want to try to find a solution. But you don't complain. You don't murmur. You thank God for all of the blessings you have. Right here in Philippians 2 is probably one of the major keys of overcoming. Philippians 2, and I've given this to you before, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, As you have always obeyed, so obedience is part of our Christian travel and character, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, the once saved, always saved people would have a little problem with that, with fear and trembling, because you must again acknowledge who you are and what you are. When you realize, just as Job finally, in comparing himself, that is, God showed him the greatness of his creation, of the whales, the ostriches, the animal life, the natural um, weather patterns. And uh, God said, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job began to see who he was that he was nothing compared to God. And it's uh, that one view, it's the book, The Privileged Planet, shows a photograph of the Milky Way and a little white dot there called the pale blue dot. And critics would say, well, look, here's this little dot in this vast universe. We are meaningless. We have no meaning and purpose. Oh, but when you see that little dot and you realize you are a tinier dot on that dot, who are you? What are you? Vanity of vanities, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, all is vanity. But you realize, no, we are nothing. And so you do work out your own salvation with fear and trembling when you you understand how powerful, how omnipotent, omniscient, God is omnipresent, as the Psalm 139. God is that powerful. So we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling with an awe and a reverence towards God. But He gives us this promise in verse 13. How do you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do For his good pleasure. So if you're having a problem overcoming a habit or a sin or some kind of weakness, ask God to work in you. And if you're weak willed, ask God to strengthen your will, to do his will. He will work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That is a key for the way of overcoming. We need to have that positive attitude and think about God's throne. Dr. Meredith gave a sermon March 29, 2014, Focus on Christ. So you think about God's throne. Read Revelation, the fourth chapter, which describes God's throne. Here's the sea of glass and the four living creatures the thunders and lightnings, the rainbow about God's throne, the seven spirits of flame, the 24 elders bowing down before God, innumerable company of angels, thousands and thousands and thousands of angels, and Christ glorified at the right hand of God the Father at His throne. So you have that focus, as Dr. Meredith gave in that sermon, focus on Christ. So we need to see the big picture. It's one of the major strategies of overcoming, and we remember that every day our very purpose is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6.33. There's a song that I like to uh, sing. I don't know if I'll try singing it here. Uh, and I've mentioned it over the years. I hope some will, someone will actually, uh, during the Days of Unleavened Bread, have a choir or a chorale sing this song. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. So uh, have you ever heard that song? I thought you have heard that song. I've been singing that throughout this Days of Unleavened Bread. Why? It gives you the focus, the big picture, the goal. And the enthusiasm, the positive attitude, I am bound for the promised land. I'm bound for God's kingdom. I want to go there. There are various verses here. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye. To Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Then the refrain, I am bound for the promised land. Oh, the transporting rapturous scene that rises to my sight. Sweet fields arrayed in living green and rivers of delight. Then another verse. Their generous fruits that never fail, on trees immortal grow, their rocks and hills and brooks and vales with milk and honey flow. I am bound for the promised land. Oh who will come and go with me? I'm bound for the promised land. Well all of us brethren are bound for the kingdom of God. And we need to have that enthusiasm as well. But will you be distracted from that goal? We have to be very careful not to be distracted from the goal that God gives us in the coming months and years ahead? Will you lose sight of the big picture? Strategy number one on your journey for overcoming, the way of overcoming, is to see the big picture. Number two is to plan ahead. Because if you don't plan ahead, you don't have the vision of where you're going. Proverbs 22 and verse three, Proverbs twenty two and verse three. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. And that's repeated in Proverbs twenty seven, twelve. So you have a calendar. You understand that Monday will be the seventh day of the days of unleavened bread. I hope you have on your calendar Pentecost for 2014, as being Sunday, June 8th. The Feast of Trumpets on September 25th, the Day of Atonement on a weekly Sabbath, October 4th. The Feast of Tabernacles begins October 9th, that is uh, the night before. And if you haven't registered for the Feast of Tabernacles yet uh, for 2014, please be sure to do so. And then we have other activities Memorial Day weekend, we have the singles activity weekend here in Charlotte, the creation weekend in Cincinnati where my wife and I will be going, and then the summer adventure trip, the Camp Lazarus, the preteen camps. We need to plan ahead. But you have to acknowledge God, in which way should I go? Sometimes we have choices to make. Proverbs, the third chapter, Proverbs 3. We need to trust in God. In fact, even some of the Kentucky uh, license plate had we trust in God. It was very encouraging to see that on some of the Kentucky license plates. Proverbs 3, verse 5, Trust in the eternal with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Sometimes what we want, the road is blocked. And we have to take another route. And we think about Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Because sometimes what we want doesn't work out, but God's going to give you something else in the meantime. Or if you make sure that you look for another way that He's you're looking for His will to be done. And you set goals. I hope that, you know, in maybe January you set goals, but here... God's beginning of the calendar, sacred calendar, uh, you're setting goals for a year from now, two years from now. Uh, Dr. Meredith has very good vision in terms of planning for the church. He plans ahead for two or three years. I know years ago he told me, well, Dick, he said, uh, when we were pastoring and moving from Pasadena to to, uh, Houston, he said, well, Dick, um, about two or three years from now, Uh, you'll be out here, we'll probably want you out here in San Diego. And two and a half years later, I was out in San Diego. He was able to plan and have that vision ahead. So try to do that if you can. Uh, People make resolutions, of course, New Year's resolutions, and uh, they don't uh, subscribe to them or follow up on them. Calvin and Hobbes uh, always uh, have an illustration of New Year's resolutions and I've probably shared this with you before, but Calvin is the precocious little boy and Cobbs is the tiger who's always his friend uh, sitting with him and they're going down on a sled on a snowy day and they're going down the hill and Calvin looks back at Cobbs and says, everybody makes the wrong kind of New Year's resolutions. All they do is promise to stop bad habits and start good habits. Now I hope that we don't just make New Year's resolutions. This is a way of life. It's a way of overcoming. We want to stop bad habits and start good habits. But this is what New Year's resolution people do. And so the tiger says to Calvin, what's wrong with that? And Calvin says, they're still going down the hill. It's not enough to change a few little habits. Everybody I know needs a complete personality overhaul. So you get the idea of, of how Calvin says, uh, everyone I know has got to be t- changed completely. So they go off the cliff, and they're flying off the cliff um, with their sled into a pool of water. And Calvin says, that's why I'll be spending the remaining days of this year telling people what, what I hate about them and how they should change. So they're climbing up out of the water, and the tiger, uh, Hob says to uh, Calvin, some of us would be happy to reciprocate, but uh, Calvin says, "Sorry, my New year's resolution is not to change a bit. And that is the way the world is, but God's people are resolved to change and be transformed into the very character, mind and image of Christ." Romans 8:29. We are transformed into the very character and image and mind of Christ. So we have to be resolved. We need to set goals for the coming year and make sure that we're changing. We have other goals, musical, social, environmental, educational goals. will capture recapture true values throughout twenty thirteen. And that is of course the motto of Living University. You may have even professional goals. But we need to be diligent in our work as Christians. Turn to John the ninth chapter and of course fulfilling the mission that Jesus has given us. John 9, he had this sense of urgency which we need to have. John 9 and verse 4. I must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So we have to again be faithful stewards. And make sure that we are resolved to go forward, produce and bear much fruit, as it says in John 15:8 that when Jesus is the vine and we're the branches, it says, "Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit." John 15:8. And so strategy number two is to plan ahead and set goals for the future. just give you one more. number three is to remember your spiritual identity. Who are you? Second Corinthians the sixth chapter, if you'll turn there, of course that's worth a whole sermon on who we are because as I remember one minister at the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, I think it was 1977 in St. Petersburg gave a quotable quote that I haven't forgotten, that Jesus never forgot who He was. And we should never forget who we are and our responsibilities. Who are we? 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16 And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said I will dwell in them. And walk among them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Who are you? You are the temple of the living God. Verse 17, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Verse 18, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So who are we? We are God's children. He's the Father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. We are branches of the vine, John 15. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are servants of Christ. We are the saints of God. And, of course, we are one bread, as we heard in the sermonette. And we're pioneers of the new covenant. But we need to keep working while it is day because night comes when there is no time to work. Well, brethren, we have a, an awesome privilege of being members of the body of Christ. tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, by one Spirit we've been baptized into one body. We are members of His body. And we must grow in the unleavened qualities of mercy, of love toward one another, of commitment and dedication and determination to make it to the promised land, to the kingdom of God. In spite of obstacles, Caleb told the people, we are well able to overcome it. Well, let's travel our daily exodus with faith and confidence, maintaining an attitude of repentance, confessing our sins, willing to take correction, willing to learn, maintaining a teachable attitude, in the years ahead, we will face perilous times. The Apostle Paul prophesied of that in 2 Timothy, the third chapter. And yet we are all kings and priests in training. God gives us the abundant life through Christ, John 10 and verse 10. So we need to see the big picture. We need to plan ahead. We need to remember our spiritual identity. Mr. Herbert Armstrong, in his last letter of January 10, 1986, wrote this regarding God's work on earth. Quote, it is the work of the living creator God. You are supporting this work of God, and it is the great God who will pour out his blessings on you for your generosity. Continue to sacrifice through 1986 to finish the commission God has given his church. The greatest work lies yet ahead. We are involved in that greatest work. And I hope that you've read the editorial in the Tomorrow's World magazine titled Open Doors for the Gospel. That we're now going to Russia, going to Hong Kong, to South America. We're going even in our semi annual offer that we have coming up. We'll have uh, subtitling for Spanish and French as well as English. Uh, these open doors we have, of course, on BET, Wednesday morning 7.30, uh, WGN. So, brethren, let's again be praying for the work, to see the big picture, and to fulfill the work. Mr. Armstrong said, The greatest work lies yet ahead. Christ confirmed that in John 4, verse 35. Say not you that there are four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Never before in the history of the church, writes Mr. Armstrong, has it been possible to reap so great a harvest. It has only been made possible through modern technology, beginning with the printing press, radio, television, and rapid mass transit and mass communication. I personally have seen nearly all of these technological advances in my lifetime, starting in the last century through the horse and buggy age to the current Space age. Let's turn to Revelation, the 21st chapter, Revelation 21. As we learn the lessons of Passover and the days of all bread, as we look forward to Pentecost, let's grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Let's rejoice in the power that God gives us through His Spirit. Revelation 21 and verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he will be my people. We must travel the way of overcoming with confidence and with faith. John 16.33, Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So when you're feeling helpless, remember that Christ has overcome the world. Remember that the Israelites had the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, but we have the living Christ to guide us continually in our daily exodus. And through Christ we can do all things. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We must be overcomers. We've been called the church of the forgiven. But pray, brethren, that we can be the faithful church of the overcomers as well. Pray for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. For let's do the work, fulfill the great commission, and be the overcomers that will be with our Father and Savior for all eternity.